Well, hello and welcome to our online services at Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We're so glad that you joined us today. And if you are a covenant member or a regular attender, we want you to know that we miss you. We miss seeing you. We miss being with you. It is a challenge each week for me to preach to a camera in an empty room. But I can just imagine in my mind's eye where all of you are because we're creatures of habit and I know where you sit each week. And even as I'm preaching now, I can imagine you being here. And I can't wait for that day for when we're back together again. We're not sure when it'll be, but we're trusting the Lord in the midst of it. Most everyone that's listening to my voice right now, the regular language of your life is that of English. And if you speak English, you know that English can often be a very interesting language. Because a lot of times we use, we use words that might be a little different than actually the description of the words they're trying to describe. And sometimes we wonder why they use that word to describe that thing. And as I've been given some consideration of the words that we use in the English language, I had some questions about some words this week. Now, maybe you've never thought of these things but I certainly have this week. So I want to just pose some questions about some English words. For example, my first question is this. Why is the word abbreviate so long? You would think it would be a short word, but it's got four syllables. Here's another question I asked this week. Why is the word phonics not spelled the way it sounds? It should be spelled with an F-O-N-I-C-K-S. Here's another one I gave some consideration to. Why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways? It just seems to be opposite. And perhaps my most favorite question that I came up with this week is this one. If vegetarians eat vegetables, then what should humanitarians eat? You see, not only do we often use words that don't seem to meet the description, but a lot of times what we do is we take very significant words in the English language, and what we do is we depreciate their value by using them as just common everyday words. And they lose the significance of their meaning and their power. Let me give you a few illustrations. How about this one? Many of us are guilty of this. OMG. Oh my God, we have taken the most significant name in all of the universe. The name that represents power and majesty, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. And we've made it a regular phrase to our common language. Or how about this one? We do this one so often. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. We say that about so many things. This hot dog is awesome. Now, I've never seen anybody stand in awe when they've taken a bite of a hot dog. And if you know what it's made of, you would never use that word about a hot dog. But we use it about each other. We use it about circumstances in our lives. We hear that everything is awesome. And if everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome. And by the way, do you realize that that word is used in the scripture only in reference to God? But here's another one that probably we depreciate more than any other word in our language. I love. I love. And we use that word to explain so many things that we love. We use it for the most trivial things, even the most significant things. Let me give you an illustration. I love ice cream. 
Many of you love ice cream, and you say that. You may say that today. I love ice cream. That means you have a strong delight in ice cream. But how about this? Some people may say, I love nature. Now, certainly God has created nature and is a reflection of his glory and his power. But we say, I love nature. Or we may say, I love my wife. And I certainly love my wife. Of 34 years, I married way above my head. And I am still way below that. But I love her. And the way I love her is different than the way I love ice cream. And then some people will use the word, I love things, and it may not be good, wholesome things. They may even be things that are not good and wholesome. For example, some people would actually say, I love blue devils. Yes, there are people who love blue devils. And closely associated to devils, people might say, I love cats. Yeah, I love cats. Now, listen, listen, I'm just kidding, okay? I'm just kidding, about the blue devils. But what happens so many times is when we take a word and we depreciate its meaning, that word loses its power. And in our English language, we probably have lost more when we talk about love than anything else. Well, we're in our series that we've entitled God's Gift in a Crisis. And as we're looking at this series, God's Gift in the Crisis, we've been looking at some of the things that God gives us when we're going through difficult times. We've discovered that when we come to faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit takes up residency within us. He comes to live in us. And when the Holy Spirit lives within us, he brings specific, unique gifts to every child of God. Now, those gifts vary between one another. But then there are the gifts that do not vary between one another. They're the gifts that God gives to us that we use when we walk through difficult times. And these gifts are the gifts of the Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit of the Spirit and how He walks and operates in all matters of life. The key verse that we've used for this is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And it's where the Apostle Paul says, For God gave us. This is the gift. He gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Two weeks ago, we began the series and we looked at the first gift that we have in the Holy Spirit. And God gives us the gift of courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the replacement of fear with the absolute confidence of God's presence. And then last week, we looked at the second gift that we have in the Spirit. He gives us the gift of divine power. He takes up residency within us, and we have all of the Holy Spirit in us. And we looked at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And Paul mentions six things in there that he gives us to walk in in difficult times. I would encourage you to go back, look at that message if you haven't seen it, and apply those six principles to your life. But today we look at the third gift. And the third gift is simply God gives us the gift of love. He gives us the gift of love as we're going through a crisis. Again, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, and of love. Now, before we can even talk about how love impacts us when we're going through difficult times, we need to understand the word love. 
In the English language, we have one word for love. And it expresses everything that we feel in our motions of like. But in the Greek language, there are four words for love. And let me give those to you real quickly. Number one is phileo. It's a brotherly or friendly kind of love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's where we get that from. So it's just a friendly kind of love. Stargay is a family kind of love. It's the love that expresses to one another within a family unit. Then you have eros is a romantic kind of love. Now, this kind of love is not mentioned in the Bible anywhere, but it is a romantic, intimate kind of love between a man and a woman. And then the fourth kind is agape. That's a love that chooses to seek another's highest good. It is different than all the other kind of loves because this is God's kind of love. This is the kind of love that God um, demonstrates. This is the kind of love that Jesus walks in. This is the kind of love that the Holy Spirit wants you and me to display in our lives regardless of what we're going through. This is the kind of love where a person chooses to put himself in a position of loving someone else. Now, you might ask the question, what does love have to do with going through a struggle and going through a crisis as a believer? Well, we get a clear picture of this from John's Gospel, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, turn right now to John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He is celebrating the last meal of his life with them before he is crucified. He will be arrested later that night. His disciples will be scattered and go into hiding, and they're going to face the greatest crises of their life. And of all the things that Jesus can prepare them for this crisis, he talks to them about love. And this love is going to carry them through some of the most difficult times from that point to the end of their lives. So what does Jesus do? Well, John tells us, as the room has been prepared, they are enjoying the last feast together. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now here's what's interesting. As the room is prepared... The disciples were responsible for preparing, making all the preparations, but they forgot one thing. They forgot to hire a servant to wash their feet. In this culture, it was always common to have a servant who would be available there. And when you came into the room, this servant, he or she, had the lowliest position in the house. And they would wash the feet of everyone before they were engaged in a meal. But they forgot about it. Clearly, they did not prepare it. But clearly, none of them assume the position of a servant. They must have all been talking to one another. Can you believe that, John? John forgot to get the servant. And somebody said, well, why don't you wash the feet? And he said, well, are you kidding me? Have you seen Peter's toenails? I am not washing those feet. And while they're having this discussion, Jesus begins to speak to them. 
in verse 12. He asked them a question. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to... And you see, for us, we know the end of that sentence. And because of our familiarity with how that sentence ends, many times we lose sight of the logic of what Jesus was saying. And the disciples were thinking a long term of the logic of what they thought Jesus meant. The basic picture as they're listening to Jesus is this. Wait, listen, I'm your Lord. I'm your teacher. If I have washed your feet, you ought also to wash my feet. They wouldn't have had a problem with that. I mean, hey, wash the feet of Jesus? What an honor that would be. After all, look at everything Jesus has done for me. I would be glad to wash his feet. He's done way more for me than anybody else around me. And therefore, it would be an honor for me to be in front of him, to wash his feet. He's the son of God. Surely his feet are clean. He's the perfect lamb of God. Surely there's not anything wrong with his toes. And I would much rather wash his feet because that's the aspiration of my life for all of eternity is to sit at his feet. And many times we think the same thing. They didn't want to wash each other's feet. The honor would be to wash the feet of Jesus. But that is not what he was saying. You see, what he's really saying is this. As I have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to wash one another's feet. Can you imagine what that must have done in their hearts and their minds? You, you want us to wash each other's feet? Because here's the thing that Jesus was teaching them. The greatest expression that we love Jesus is to love one another. It's to love one another. In fact, in verse 34, Jesus says this to them. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Now, this is not just some kind of emotion. This is not some superficial kind of feeling. This is a willful choice to seek another person's highest good. That's why it's a command. Jesus commands them to seek the other person's highest good. Seeking another person's highest good is not based upon emotion. Seeking another person's highest good is not based upon a feeling. Seeking another person's highest good is not even based upon the fact of whether or not I like you. It has nothing to do with that. It's a command. And because it's a command, all commands have a choice to obey or disobey. And it is a new command. Why? Because we are to love in a way that this world does not love. The Lord Jesus demonstrated this as he went to the cross, as he suffered pain, as he suffered humiliation. He gave himself to seek our highest good, even when we were sinners. And so what is the power of love in the midst of a crisis? Well, we find this out, and there are two specific things that when you and I walk in love in the midst of a crisis that it produces not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. Here's the first one. It's found in verse 35. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people, everyone around you, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's the first reason walking in love in the midst of a crisis is so important. The greatest evidence of our discipleship is found in the way we love others. The greatest expression, the greatest evidence that we are truly disciples is if we love one another the way Jesus has loved us. Now, some people will push back on that. They'll say, no, 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 wait a minute. The greatest evidence that I'm a disciple of Jesus should be my intimate relationship with him, right? Or the greatest evidence that I'm a disciple of Jesus should be my love for his word and I walk in obedience. Or maybe the greatest expression of my discipleship should be found in the fact that I'm walking in holiness and purity. Those things are right. But listen, if I'm walking in an intimate relationship with him, I will love others as he loved me. If I'm walking in obedience to his word, I will love others as he has loved me. If I'm seeking holiness and righteousness and justice and mercy, I will love others as he has loved me. My love for other people is always the greatest evidence of the depth of my discipleship. And Jesus gives the world in this verse the opportunity to judge the church. It's the only place. And as they're looking into the stained glass windows of our lives, they're measuring the depth of our discipleship on the expression of how we willfully choose to seek the highest good of someone else. Now, why is this significant in a crisis? Here's why. In every single crisis, we tend to want to go into a self-preservation mode. In every single crisis that we face, we tend to want to protect our own. We want to take care of us four and no more. We, we got to take care of our holy huddle. And so what we do is we go into self-preservation mode where we shut down and we love only those closest to us. And when we do that, we disrupt the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we do that, we distort the character of Jesus. When we do that, we demonstrate the shallowness of our own discipleship. I remember in 1999 when Y2K was about to hit. Everybody was panicked. It was going to be a global meltdown of sorts. The computers were not adjusted right and everything would go crazy. Bank accounts would be lost. Everything would be chaos. And I know of a family that purchased an 18-wheel truck and trailer. And they filled that 18-wheel truck and trailer up with food. And they backed it into their yard, locked the back doors, and watched it with armed rifles. They were going to take care of themselves. And when you and I live in that way, we have demonstrated the shallowness of our discipleship. You see, if the man wouldn't have backed it in, but if he would have pulled it in, instead of locking the doors, opened the doors to the community, then there would have been seeking the highest good. So when I go through a crisis, when my family goes through a crisis and the world is watching me deal with that, the way I love them actually communicates the depth of my love for Jesus. 
So it's very important. But there's a second point here too. You see, not only as I walk in love in the midst of a crisis does it demonstrate the authenticity of my discipleship, but the second one is found in 1 John. Not surprisingly, John himself writes about this again. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, here's what John says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, now get it now. This is John writing in 1 John. He is echoing the very words that Jesus had in that upper room. You ought to love one another. But now he takes it farther. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Again, there's the evidence. If we love one another, people see authentic discipleship in us. But not only if we love one another does God abide in us, but his love is perfected in us. Here's the second thing that we need to see when we're going through a crisis. God's love is most matured in us when we love others. His love is most matured in us. Now, John doesn't say that your love is matured in God as you love him. That's not what he said. He said God's love is matured in you when you love other people. Now, there are two directions in our love relationship. There's always the vertical direction. That's our relationship with God. And that has to be first established before we can love others. But then that vertical relationship, when I love God rightly, the horizontal will be in place and I will love people rightly. And when I love people rightly, then God's love is matured in my own life. And so the two things is this. When I'm going through a crisis, I can express the love of God flowing through me into other people's lives. And not only do they see God's love flowing through me in my life, but they can experience God's love flowing from me in their lives. And when you and I walk like that in love, then what we begin to do is we take the highest good of other people. The discipleship in our life is becoming a reality for people to see. And God's love in me is being matured. Now, how does that work its way out? As we walk through a crisis, how are we to demonstrate the evidence of our discipleship and the maturity of our love to others? Let me give you three things. Number one, God's love is seen and perfected in us as we seek the highest good of fellow believers. It begins in the house of God. And we collectively are going through a crisis. Many times there are individuals within the church who are going through crises. And, and many times there are groups. And now our whole culture is. And as we're walking through this, we are to make a willful choice to love one another. To seek one another's highest goods. The Lord Jesus said that. And even Peter reflects this in 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We are to love one another. As we're going through this crisis, we have the opportunity to seek each other's highest goods. And it's so easy to love one another in these times. Let me give you some illustrations. Call one another. Just make a phone call and just say, hey, how you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? I was thinking about you today. Can I pray for you? It doesn't have to be a long phone call. 
just one of remembering. As I'm sitting around the house and I'm working in my office, I've not seen many of you for a long time. Some of you I've been calling. I called a man the other day and I said, listen, I just thought about you. How can I pray for you? We prayed together. We were off the phone. Then we had a man in the life of our church who was in the hospital since December. And they put him in Florence, South Carolina, Mr. Roland Holler. And he was unable to have any guests off FaceTimed him. He couldn't talk because of a trach. And I just spoke with him. We read scripture together. I prayed for him. He came home. I went to his house to see him. During his whole quarantine time, as I walked in, he reached out his arms to hug me. This is a dying man, his last hours. And I cared nothing about the quarantine at that point. I simply hugged him. He kissed me on the cheek. I prayed for him. And the next day, he went to be with Jesus. But his last moments were opportunities for people to love him. There are all kinds of ways that you're doing that. Many of you are dropping care packages off at each other's homes. You're dropping cookies off. You're doing all kinds of things to encourage one another. You, some of you are, are having virtual birthday parties on the, uh, on the computer. Some of you, I've heard, are parades going through neighborhoods and blowing the horn because someone's sick and in bed. This past week, Monday, as I was working in my backyard, I was surprised when a van pulled into my front yard and out of that van came a whole tribe of children. Jeff and Ashley Potit brought their four kids to my house. And I didn't know what was going on. And Jeff runs to me and he has this bucket. He says, Pastor Phil, I got something for you. And he drops it off. And I come to the front yard and all of his kids have taken up different positions in the front yard. And I look in a bucket and it's filled with water balloons. And his kids began this water balloon fight with me from six feet apart. And my wife is videoing it. Everybody knew about this but me. And she's screaming, get him, get him, get him, hit him. And they did. And within a few moments, I was soaking wet. And they so blessed my heart. They wanted to show love to their pastor by coming and beating him up with water balloons. I was just only thankful at that time that they were not enrolled in karate classes. But there are things we can do. Who can you reach out to this week? Who can you love this week? Who can you make a willful choice to seek their highest good and demonstrate the depth of authentic discipleship and allow God to mature his love in you? See, we are to love one another. You can do that, and we are. But here's the second thing I want to remind you of. By God's love, God's love is seen and perfected in us as we seek the highest good for non-believers. For non-believers. Now, I want to tell you, it's one thing for you and me to be in our Christian bubble. It's one thing for you and me to love people who we know will love us back. But it's another thing for us to love people that we don't know whether they'll be indifferent or even if they care about what we do. But we are called to love the lost as much as we love the saved. And we are called to reach out to them as well. We are called by the Apostle Paul to be ambassadors on behalf of Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he, of chapter 5, he puts it this way. Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We're called to be the ambassadors of Christ. We're called to take the gospel to the lost. And we're called to seek their highest good, even in a time such as this. The danger for many believers is, too often we treat non-believers as though they're a virus. We don't like their lifestyles. We don't like their choices. After all, they're sinners and we're saints. Well, let me remind you, the prerequisite of being a saint is to be a sinner. The prerequisite of being redeemed is to have been lost. And we too, at one point, were in that very place. And when we treat them like a virus, what do we do? We put our mask on so we don't breathe the same air they breathe. We put our gloves on so we don't touch the same things they touch. We want to spiritually social distance from them. And what we do is we do not give to them the one thing they need. If indeed there is a virus in them, it is sin. And indeed, the answer, the cure, the vaccine is the gospel. And in a time like this, this is when the world needs to see the depth of our discipleship. It's in a time like this where we need to allow the Father to mature His love in us. It's during a time like this that we can serve them. And there's so many ways we can do it in the midst of this crisis, this pandemic that we're in. You know that we can go and, and help the elderly. There are many elderly in our community who don't have anybody to help them. And we can grocery shop for them. Many of the lawn services have been canceled. We can go and mow their grass. We can wash their cars. We can drop off goodies, maybe birthday cakes for those who are having birthdays. We can demonstrate the very love of Jesus to them and let them see that we love them as much as we love the church. And here's the wonderful thing. When you and I are loving them this side and in the midst of this crisis, when we get past this crisis, you know what we have? We have relational leverage to invite them to church and to let them continue to see, hear, and experience the message of the gospel. And let me just remind you of this one thing. It's during this pandemic that God has kicked the church out of the building. We have left the building. Why? God says, you're the salt of the earth. And during this time, what God has done is he has forced the salt to leave the salt shaker and to go into the world. Here is our opportunity, church. As we go through a crisis, we are to love people who most need Jesus. But here's the third thing I want you to see in the last. God's love is seen and perfected in us as we seek the highest good for those who do not like us. We're living in a culture today that's continually getting more and more hostile towards Christianity. And there are people in our lives that simply do not like us. Love has nothing to do with whether a person likes you or not. It is a willful choice to seek another person's highest good, even when they despise you. The apostle, I mean, uh, Jesus speaks of this in the Gospel of Luke on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but I say to you here, 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those for whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Then he goes on. He says, but love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Here's the point. You and I, to not only express love to one another, and to express love to those in our community, non-believers, but we're to express love to the kind of people who don't like us, in fact, may even hate us. And in the midst of a crisis in the early church, the one thing that was overwhelming in the persecution was the love of believers in the midst of their suffering. And as a result, many people came to faith in Christ because of that kind of love. I used to work sheet metal many years ago. And as I worked sheet metal, there was a particular guy that worked there that he actually despised me. He hated me. He didn't hate me for any other reason than the fact that I was a Christian. And not just a Christian, I was an outspoken disciple. I would speak openly and honestly about my relationship with Christ. I would share the gospel with every guy that I worked with. I really loved people, and I wanted them to know about Jesus Christ. Well, he would take every single opportunity when we worked together to use the most profane language to try to twist it in me and stir me and see what he could do to poke and prod me. He would tell the most filthy of jokes, even when I told him I didn't want to hear it. He would call me all kinds of names. He would just absolutely get under my skin. And he would always volunteer to work with me. And this made me so angry. I mean, there were times I wanted to punch his lights out in the name of Jesus, of course. And there were many times I'd pray the imprecatory psalms that David would pray over people. You know, like, Lord, break their arm, knock their teeth out of their head. I did pray that, and it was an interesting outcome for another time. But I just couldn't stand working around this guy until the Lord set this verse in my heart. And I began to burn with the understanding that, you know what, I don't like him. In fact, I can't stand him. But I'm going to choose to love him. I'm going to choose to love him. And I made that choice. Because I had seniority working there for so many years, I got to pick my crews after a while. And I always picked him to be on my crew. He couldn't figure that out. And I always wanted him to work with me. And so when he'd come to work, I would ask questions. And he would begin trying to use the profane language and the filthy stories and the slander, just everything. But I never would give in to that. And then I would tell him, i say, I'm praying for you. I want you to know I'm praying for you and your family. And boy, that would irritate him. But little by little, the walls began to break. And he was beginning to open up. And I remember that there was a saying a long time ago that I learned, hurt people hurt people. And I knew this man was hurt. So I just began to pray over him and ask God to give me a love for this guy. One day he comes to work and he was very distraught. I didn't know what was going on. And so I just walked up to him and I said, man, you look like you're really down. What's happening in your life? 
And he just went, went, his eyes got watery. He didn't just have tears. They just got watery. And he said, man, my wife wants to divorce me. She says it's over. My first thought was, huh, I wonder why. But when I thought, and I could see the pain in his face, without even hesitating, I hugged him. And I just whispered in his ear, I love you, man. Then I realized how awkward that was, and he realized how awkward that was. And we instantly began to practice social distancing, extreme social distancing. And it was one of those things that you do and you just can't take back. And so I thought, man, did I mess up today? That was weird. And we went through the course of the day, and we worked together. And I got out into the parking lot, and he was hanging around, and everybody was driving off, and he walked up to me. He said, Phil, I need to tell you something. I said, what is it? He said, you're the first man in my life that has ever hugged me and told me that you love me. He said, I've never met anybody like you. And he went. From that time on, he was a different guy. And one day during our lunch break, sitting in his car, sharing the gospel with this man, he surrendered his life to Christ. His marriage was restored, by the way. And love had everything to do with it. See, some of you may be working with people that despise you. Some of you may be having family members that don't like you. Some of you may have neighbors who may be family members that get under your skin. And the depth of your discipleship will be demonstrated in the manner of your love. Will you make a willful choice to love them even though you can't stand them? Will you make a willful choice today to love people as we're going through this crisis, delivering meals on wheels, praying with people in their homes, working with vigilant hope and sharing the good news with the homeless, reaching to your neighbors and letting them see God's love in you and letting them experience God's love through you to them. Will we love one another? And after this crisis, will the world look into the windows of Scotts Hill Baptist Church? What will they see? Will they be able to judge us based upon a love that is being matured because of our obedience in Christ? Or will they look at us and say, they were only interested in themselves, not us? You see, in the midst of any crisis, when we walk in love, we walk like Jesus. After all, isn't that what the Father did for us? Romans 5, 8. For, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did he die for us? When we were enemies. When we were hostile in our minds. When we were dead in our spirits. When we were sinners set against him. He died for us. Jesus demonstrated the ultimate depth of love by submitting to his father, suffering humility and pain 
so that he can give us our highest good. His blood. His perfection for our sin. Atoning us. Redeeming us. Adopting us. Empowering us. So that we in turn can love others. We're all in this together. Let's all love together. Walking in courage. Walking in power walking in love. If you're listening to my voice and you're not a believer here today, I want you to know that we love you. We do. And it's no accident that you heard this message because what we want you to know is that Jesus loves you far greater than we can ever love you. He died for you. And I want you to know, friend, that His greatest passion and desire is for you. Would you surrender your life to him today? Would you receive the forgiveness that he offers and the life that he gives? Would you step into the very glory of God as you surrender your life, as you repent of your sins, as you turn by faith in Christ? You can do that right now. Simply praying a prayer. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know my sin has separated me from you but I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead on the third day, and I believe you're alive today. And right now, I surrender my life to you, my past, my present, my future. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and be my Lord and my Savior. Pray that prayer. Call us, let us know, so we can walk with you during this time. Believers, What is the depth of your discipleship? It's your love for others. Don't just say, I love God, but have no love for those around you. The measure of your love for Jesus is your love for others. It always is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love, as Jeremiah tells us. Father, we thank you that you have loved us in Christ Jesus. And Father, that you have loved us even when we were loveless. So Father, as you have loved us and forgiven us and called us to be your sons and daughters, Father, may we love others with that kind of love. And no matter what crisis we come through, no matter what difficulties we face, when we walk in the power of the love of Christ and in the Holy Spirit, we demonstrate your love for others through our lives. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.